going live. Hello and welcome everyone to the sixth session of Nick Land Bitcoin and Philosophy Seminar. I'm going to pass it on to Nick to begin his lecture. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, so the, the preset topic for this week was cryptography or especially concentrating on the crypto aspects of it. Um, so I was thinking we could have a little preliminary discussion of public key cryptography. Um, and then I've got a couple of pieces in the classroom that both I think could be really uh, stimulating foci for conversations. I got something from Ivan which actually was raising something that I think has been coming up a lot, um, understandably. I've been sort of kicking it down the road, which is this whole question about the relation of this Bitcoin topic to what is perhaps the most um, excited philosophical uh, discourse on finance currently, which is I think can be really traced back to Ali Ayash. Um, Ivan actually uh, refers to John Roth, uh, if I'm pronouncing his name right, who's who's one of the writers in the Collapse volume. I enjoyed his piece a lot in that volume. I don't know much about his work beyond that. Um, but it definitely seems to me there is, uh, even though it's a very complicated bridged across. I think there's enough there to to start at least understanding the terms of that crossing and how one would begin to move between these two different types of discussion. And the second piece, or the second uh, actually set of stimulus came from Laura on stuff that we talked about last time. Now she sent three different links and I'm afraid the only one that I'm at all on top of at this stage is the first of them, which is a, a link to Brett Scott's article that was alluded to last time um, because of the fact that he'd said he'd criticized the notion of money as a store of value. Now, I actually recognized this uh, article when I saw it. I've The first time I looked at it was... I, I was not reading it very carefully. Um, I looked at it a little bit more carefully this time. Um, but there's also plenty there to trigger a, a set of discussions. Um, he makes three particular points, what he calls myths about money that need to be dispelled. And they're all at least interesting if, if I think in certain respects um, his unambiguous attitude to all of them is to me a little bit hasty but we can see what people think about that so um, if it's okay with people I thought we'd start with the cryptographic topic and then perhaps move on to these other ones along with anything else that people want to introduce um, so Right from the start, I have included on our syllabus a link 
to this 1976 paper um, by Whitfield Diffie and Martin Hellman called New Directions in Cryptography, dating all, all the way back to 1976. I mean, um, which I guess to a lot of people seems like ancient history now. Um, I would say that this essay, which is actually a lot more demanding than the Bitcoin paper, um, but is probably the second most important reference on the, on the reading at least in terms of its direct relevance to this thing. And I think understanding public key crypto cryptography, at least to some extent, and I'm not at all pretending to have a uh, exceptional mastery of it. I mean, I'm at basically Wikipedia level of understanding of public key cryptography. But I think that's already enough, from my point of view, to be quite astounded by the importance of it and to see firstly how it's absolutely uh, fundamental to the possibility of Bitcoin um, as well as many other things and secondly how its historical importance is really hard to overestimate. I mean it's a quite extraordinary um, advance in, in I don't know how you'd want to categorize it in human culture in general or something more than that. Um, that, that, that maybe something that we want to try and pin down later. Um, and I think the best way of understanding quite how important it is is that it's comparable in certain ways to a bunch of things that have a very similar historical structure. And the two obvious ones, I think, that have exactly this shape to them is the history of logic and the history of money. Now obviously this last one, I'm going to say, I'm going to use Bitcoin basically as the example for that. The history of logic, simply to say that People um, talking about uh, girdle, girdle coding, and the kind of revolution that he introduced in the 1930s to do with the understanding of, of the possibility of the logicization of mathematics, um, attempted to say something like, you know, he's one of the two greatest logicians in history, along with Aristotle, then a pause and then say, no, he's the greatest logician in history. And the, the, the deep structure of that is that um, there's really a prehistory which goes all the way up to Girdle and then there's this massive break and then there's something that is truly modern that happens. And you look for your ancient authorities and they're people who really systematize a certain kind of common sense that you know Aristotle of course is used as a reference because he tells us what everyone thinks logic has to be like in a way that is convincing um, 
but it's you only get the counterintuitive break at this last stage where something happens that no one could have predicted and that you have a subject that has lasted for thousands of years with minor refinements and slight nudges and transformations and then at a certain point it undergoes this catastrophic rupture and you're in a totally different world. So the whole long, long arc that is um, can be condensed in a certain way by the attempt to understand the relationship between arithmetic and logic, slowly, slowly closing on this possibility of producing a logical system for arithmetic that seems to be heading towards some, you know, state of perfection where people think they're almost they've almost got there, and obviously in these famous names like Russell and Piano in the in the um, early 20th century. It looks like it's finally just about to arrive and then Gödel comes along and says this is totally misconceived and he says it in such a way that it is then defeated. You know, that whole historical project has become, has been obsolete and everything that it was trying to do is now seen as being misconceived in this fundamental way. Um, and the history of cryptography is exactly the same structure in the sense that you can take the history back as far as you want before public key cryptography and it has a continuity to it. There are all kinds of refinements and minor transformations but the fundamental history of cryptography is a single story until you get to public key cryptography and then it completely it's revolutionized in a way no one had imagined before. And so the, if you're trying to um, identify what the principle of cryptography is prior to public key cryptography, um, the term that is used and is extremely helpful, it's, it's, a, it's a nice uh, coinage because it, it is helpful and makes a lot of sense and captures the essence of the thing, is that all cryptography was symmetrical until you get to public key or asymmetric cryptography. And what is so? What is meant by 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 symmetry? There, it's actually very simple. The the principle and the assumption of what it was for cryptography to operate, what a code, a cipher, in that sense was, is that between the message and the uh, crypto version of that message between the plain text and the cipher text, there is a difference that is described by a key. And there are all different kinds of candidates for this key. There are kind of letter substitutions. There are the, the this old Roman way of winding a message around a, a, a um a stick of a certain width and the way the amount of revolutions it did around that automatically encrypted the message. Um, there's obviously very secure forms of symmetrical um, encryption using one-time pads where um, there is no um, cipher except for that message that is based on a particular key that, that uh, 
is required um, by both parties. Um, and everybody throughout, again, those thousands of years, I mean, it's probably a, a history longer than the history of, of an attempt to formalize logic, just assumed that, of course, cryptography was symmetrical. It was something that just seemed to be implicit in the very idea of cryptography. And that following from that, if you were able to encrypt a message, you were automatically able to decrypt it, and vice versa. There's a key, and the key transforms between a, a, a ciphertext and a plain text symmetrically, um, and therefore, uh, if you could do one of these operations, you could do the other one inevitably and obviously and clearly. So that's one of the fundamental characteristics of symmetrical cryptography, cryptography as it has always been until 1976. Um, the other characteristic that follows from that is that in order to have a crypto system, you have to have, I think what can be fairly called, a conspiracy. The, the people who are involved in the cryptographic exchange must get together outside the system. I mean, um, it's tempting if we're translating between the language of transcendental philosophy and these vocabularies to say they have to enter a transcendent space outside the system and exchange the key so that they both actually, the, the act by which the key is shared is an act that takes place outside of the cryptographic economy that the key makes possible. You cannot communicate the key cryptographically. If you send it to someone in code, they can't use the key and so they can't use it. Or if that you sent it to them in a way that they could access the key from the message, then anyone could access the key from the message and therefore it would be insecure. So there's no way with a symmetrical cryptographic system that you can actually in, enter into a, uh, a cryptographic exchange without a conspiratorial moment outside of that circuit of, of cryptographic communication. Now, just practically speaking, that obviously becomes a huge problem if there is a requirement for widespread crypto communication because um, it's okay if you're a secret agent that you somehow get together with the people you're going to be communicating with before your mission starts and therefore you've, that you've got the code, they've got the code and then the mission starts and you've got your little cryptographic microeconomy. It just involves a limited number of people, it's something that's doable. But if you're engaged in commercial crypto communication, if you want to send payments cryptographically to some large company with millions of anonymous customers, it's completely impractical to use an asymmetric, I mean, to use a symmetrical cryptographic system to, to engage in that exchange. So the big change then, 
that was anything that was independently invented. Um, Diffie, Hel Hellman, they also, Hellman in particular, insist also that Ralph Merkel, who you've come across from the Merkel tree um, contribution, and maybe some other, some other uh, elements, he's obviously very active in this whole world. The, um, so Hellman says uh, it should be called Diffie, Hellman, Merkel, Key Exchange. Um, but it was independently invented a little bit just one year later by a team at MI MIT, uh, which is Ron Rivest. Um, sorry, let me just look at this. Ardi Shamir and Leonard Edelman. Um, and their names were used then for the uh, acronym of that, which is RSA encryption, which I'm sure everybody has heard of. So it's one of those things like calculus and innumerable other sort of massive breakthroughs that have this strange um, coincidental origin in that way, independent um, invention. But irrespective of that, the, the basic idea is this. Um, and the reason it's called asymmetric is that the actions of encryption and decryption become broken in asymmetric cryptography and it becomes broken on the basis of a particular type of double key so rather than a single key all symmetrical encryption has a single key asymmetric encryption has a double key and the two sides of that key are mathematically bonded. They have a deep connection to each other and you'll see the function of that as we talk about it. They're mathematically bonded but between those two sides of the key, the two, the two keys, um, that the relation is asymmetrical because it's easy to go in one direction and extremely difficult to go in the other direction. And we've already seen that asymmetry is cropping up over and over and over and over again here. I mean, I'm always tempted to see it as an index of time at work in these systems. We've seen that there's a for the various forms of entropy, um, as, sorry, of irreversibility. Uh, tempts people, I think, often interestingly and productively to, to introduce this thermodynamic discussion that we're talking about an irreversibility of the same kind as any kind of entropic process that can go towards disorder but cannot be moved back to order within, uh, practically. Um, and it's also, as we've seen, that the form of the contract in general, as a commitment, also involves a notion of asymmetry. That the ideal, the model contract, is facile to enter into and hard stroke impossible to back out of. That's implicit in a contract, that all of these tendencies towards fluid, frictionless commercial interaction require that it's extremely easy to make a deal but once you've made a deal you can't retract 
that deal. So there's an asymmetric relationship that is intrinsic to the very notion of commercial exchange. And here we have another type of asymmetry. And the asymmetry here is between a mathematical function that connects these two keys. The, the facile key, we could say the simple key, is your public key. And bonded to that is a private key. And you cannot derive the private key from the public key tractably. The, so what we're really seeing here is a whole new way of hiding things. A way of hiding things that has never previously been entertained in, in the history of cryptography. And by that, I think we mean history. It's a completely new understanding of secrecy and hiding, um, which I'm very inclined to call the open secret. The open secret is the same thing we see in Bitcoin on the, on the ledger, in the fact that everything is completely exposed, and yet you still are able to engage in hidden activities, hidden in that case because it's based on this cryptographic system, um, and more directly because um, your real-life identity is hidden outside of the actual system of commercial exchange that Bitcoin realizes. The open secret in public key cryptography is realized by the fact that your public key can be completely exposed, and it works best if it is totally exposed to public circulation. So in this way, it works like your public address. And when I say it works like, I mean, these analogies, it's, based, it's because there is the same technical mechanism behind it. So it's like your public um, address within the Bitcoin system. The more people know it, the better. If you want people to be able to pay you Bitcoins, you tell everybody your public address. In the same way with public key encryption, if you want to be able to communicate with people cryptographically, you put your public key on your business card. You share it, you put it up on the web, you completely hide it. There's no, the more you publicize it, the better. And your private key, just like your private Bitcoin address is kept strictly to yourself. Um, and as I say, you're able to do this because your private key cannot be derived from your public key, even though they are bonded together. And the example that I find, because as I say, my level of technical immersion in this is woefully limited, but I think the example that is easiest to understand, and it's the one historically that came first, mm -hmm. it was actually anticipated by Jevons way back in the 19th century, in 1874, is prime number factorization. So that if you have two we don't need to go for massive crypto security for our, our example. If you want to go for, uh, if you have two largish primes, you know, say just 10 digits each, 
and you can multiply them together with a calculator, even with a piece of paper, pretty fast. Um, but using the same technology that you used to encrypt, if you then try to decrypt by then extracting those primes from the product of their combination, it takes vastly, vastly longer. I mean, without a, I, I suspect that a really powerful computer can deal with 10-digit primes, um, but the amount of computation that would be required would be billions and billions and billions of calculations in order, by brute force, by trying out every plausible um, prime number and therefore using this technique called Erastothenes's net, which is the only, is the brute force method for, for prime factorization, you, you, it would eventually find it. But there is, the, the key point is that there is a vast, vast asymmetry between the ease of the encryption and the ease of the decryption if you don't have the key. That anyone can do can multiply these two primes together, and then they're faced with a number that they know they're told has only two prime factors, each of ten digits. Let's say to make it easier, and it would take you unassisted vastly longer than the age of the universe to extract those extract those prime numbers out of the number. Um, and even a powerful computer takes huge, huge amounts of computational effort, and if you make them a little bit longer, you can make it impractical, even for the most powerful supercomputer, to do that reversal, while leaving the original task, multiplying two largest primes together, extremely, extremely simple. So that's this example of a, of a asymmetric mathematical relationship. And you can see from that, it has everything, it works, that people use other methods, you know, the, the one that Bitcoin uses is this thing called elliptical curve cryptography, and I can only trust, because this is what I'm told by what I'm reading, that the abstract principle is the same, the abstract principle being that there is a massive asymmetry between the, the facility of encryption and the facility of decryption. So you can see, if you have a public and a private key related by this kind of mathematical relationship, they are bonded utterly and precisely together. There's no... Uh, they're bonded so closely together that you obviously generate the public key out of the private key originally, and they're bonded together so closely that it will allow a whole bunch of operations of which the most important we're just about to move on to. But even though there is this bond, it's completely inaccessible to anybody who is has access to the public side of that of that pair. So you can float your public key with any concerns and your private key while attached to it um, inseparably, like a sort of dark twin is not actually uh, accessible. 
And so, as I say, this relationship between the public and private, the, the light and dark side. <laughs> of a cryptographic couple is a new understanding of secrecy. It's something that had never been anticipated before. But with it, everything becomes possible in the world that we're discussing. I mean, the most straightforward things that are already deeply entrenched is the whole infrastructure of conventional online commerce. You know, forget about cryptocurrencies, just talk about PayPal or talk about even using your credit card to engage in online payments. Anything of that kind that involves you entering into a crypto protected relationship with a stranger in a public communication channel is now feasible. And this is a this is a huge thing. I mean, it's complete something that was completely impossible to achieve in advance of this um, step forward. So I, I'm gonna stop on this in one second. I just want to say the two uh, crucial functions. Once you've got your public and private key, you can do a whole bunch of clever things by combining them in certain ways. And the most, there's two that are particularly important. Um, so the first thing, I, everyone talks about are Alice and Bob. I think it's because of the A and B thing there. So I might as well stick with convention. And we've got Alice and Bob who are trying to engage in crypto communication. So the first thing is that Alice wants to send Bob a, an, an encrypted message. Now, as I say, the only way in, in the prehistory of cryptography, in the symmetrical epoch of cryptography, that this could happen is if Alice and Bob conspire. At, at some point, outside of the um, ecumenon or outside the commercium or however you want to describe it, the system, they have to get together and engage in, a, in an exchange of such that they both share a key that they both then are able to keep secret. In public key cryptography, that's unnecessary. All that is required is that um, Bob finds Alice's public key and uses it to encrypt a message and sends it to Alice. Um, now, because the system is asymmetric, Alice's public key cannot decrypt that message. Obviously, if it could, then the, there would be no cryptographic protection at all. Her public keys out there, anyone can take it. They can take Alice's public key, get the message, use it, and decrypt message. But the way PKC works is only Alice's private key will decrypt a message encrypted using her public key. So you can take a message, use Alice's public key 
use that to encrypt the message, and then plaster that message everywhere, completely openly, um, like, obviously, the blockchain. It's, there's no, it's a totally open secret. You can say, you can tantalize people, I am sending Alice a secret message of extreme importance that everyone would be fascinated by. I'm using nothing to encrypt it but her public key. Here it is. Boom, for your thing. The only person who can decrypt that message is the person who has Alice's private key. We will assume Alice. So this allows secure crypto communication across a public channel. And it's something that just simply hadn't been seen as being possible uh, prior to this uh, revolution in cryptography. The other thing that you can do, which is almost as important, um, is digital signatures. And as we've seen with Bitcoin, the notion of a signature becomes extremely important in this recent phase of um, cryptography. I mean, the notion of a signature has always been extremely important. It's always been a mark of identity, and it's obviously used prior to this kind of level of sophistication. Um, very blurry um, forms of bio-identification you know, your, your signature. Just assume no one can forge your signature plausibly. I mean, people were not in a position to do iris scans or complicated forms of these um, bio-identification. So they use these very, very uh, crude and what look now very hazy forms of identification through things that are supposed to be marks of your biological identity that can't be forged. But obviously, just like the problem of putting money into cyberspace, the problem of putting identity into cyberspace falls prey to what we've been seeing uh, on the monetary side as the double spending problem. Like it's the whole medium is designed for near free copying. So how can you possibly have a form of identity on the web that is secure, that is a that acts as a reliable signature? And this is a huge serious problem, but it's one again that's solved by public key cryptography. And in this case. Uh, you reverse the thing, and if you want to um, provide a signature, you use your private key, and you send a message in your private key, and it can only be extracted by someone who has your public key. Now, that could be anybody. So it's the opposite of a crypto communication. A signature is not meant to be kept secret. It's like if you sign something, it's not that you want your signature is any kind of secret. What's in what the relation that's important there is that your signature cannot be forged. That you're proving 
identity. And you prove identity by because the fact is if you sign something digitally using your private key, your public key will show that it was you who signed it, or the person who signed it had to have been someone with access to your private key. So ownership of your private key becomes the key, the principle of identity. It's the kind of bottom line at this stage. There's, there's nothing more basic to being you than this relationship of cryptographic propriety over a private key. Um, and this too, as you can imagine, is of extraordinary importance to be able to actually prove irreversibly and definitively that you signed something, that the only way in which you could not have been the person who signed it is if you've let someone else steal your private key. And obviously then you're basically saying you've let someone steal your identity. Um, so I think rather than just carrying on indefinitely with this, because there are other things we want to talk about, I'll kind of draw a close to this particular block at this point and see whether anyone has anything they want to discuss about, about public key cryptography. Nick, I'm quiet because I'm still trying to figure out the relationship between private and public and conceptualize it in my mind, how they work. Yes. I've been just drawn. It, it, it is something that takes a bit of um, mental juggling, I think. I mean, if there's anything I can do to try and clarify, I would probably be repeating, but that can sometimes be helpful. Um, um, I think the important thing to remember is that, I mean, public key and private key are rigidly bonded together, that the private key is the hidden part of the relation, and it's hidden because of the fact that there's an asymmetric difficulty of getting from one to the other. To get from the private key to the public key is not a problem, but to get to the private key from the public key is all but impossible. And because a key pair there, and you can put the public key out in the public domain, it means that if you encrypt something with a public key, it requires decryption by the corresponding private key. And so on one side, you can use that to prove, if you, if you start by encrypting something with a private key, you can prove who encrypted that. That's the digital signature option. Or if, say, Mo, I wanted to send you a message that was secure, I would find your public key. You could just simply put it with your ID somewhere on the net. I would look at it, I would read your pu public key, I would take my message and I would use your public key to encrypt a message to you. Now the only message could then be decrypted is with your private key. So this means that I can send you, without us ever having conspired, without us ever having in entered into any kind of relationship, private offline relationship in which we have exchanged some kind of 
cryptographic protocol with each other transcendently, I would say, in Kantian mode, without any of that being necessary, I just by seeing your public key and by you having a private key, I can send you an entirely secure crypto communication. Obviously then if you wanted to then reply to me, you would need my public key. Uh, I can't get if you and if you encrypt something using your public key, no one can get to it but you. So if you want to send a message to me, you need my public key and then I have to use my private key to decrypt it. But if you wanted to prove who you were to me, you would use your private key and then anybody could use your public key and that would prove beyond any doubt that you were the person who had signed that document. Can I make a comment on this kind of idea of the, the open secret, sort of in general? Yes. Um, sorry, I've got some cat interference on <laughs> Bradley. Um, perhaps outside of the Bitcoin or the blockchain um, mechanism in which this is perfectly um, important. Isn't the kind of um, the importance of having two levels of language, of having an esoteric and an exoteric level of language, the fact that there is a possibility to decipher it, if only you have the right kind of knowledge, or you've earned it, or you've um, figured it out in some way, or you've been initiated into right. certain uh, realms of knowledge that give you the tools to decipher it. And so you become party to the secret through a kind of labor, but one that is possible. Yeah. So there is an a there is an a there sorry there is a symmetry, but it's a very specific qualified symmetry, and so the whole kind of um, game of employing this two levels of communication or transmission is to be able to work both to make it intelligible um, esoterically, but not transparent right. exoterically. Yes. Um, and so, the, again, this is my problem with the temporality as, as an asymmetrical temporality in terms of production. Um, that there's a kind of shutting down of a lot of the um, fun possibilities in this, in the fact that, that, that it is so kind of rigidly um, structured. Secure. Yeah. I mean, this I, is, this I is don't really say just an aesthetic that. point. Sure, and and I would say about that that, like, um, you know, I I'm not going to explore your financial circumstances, but I'm pretty sure that you there's a certain level where you don't want people engaging in aesthetic experimentation with your bank account, um, um, and so there is that level of, um. A sort of a kind of absolutized asymmetry. I mean, it clearly isn't absolute ever in a kind of strictly conceptual sense. You know, we're talking about, you know, you can, it's always a quantitative increase in security. And you can say, look, this would take the biggest supercomputer in the world 50 trillion years to break. 
or whatever. No, let's make it a hundred trillion years. No, let's make it two hundred trillion years. I mean, but you never get to infinite security um, in a purely conceptual way. But you get so far beyond what can be played with that it might as well be absolute. But there's no reason why this whole spectrum needs to be down at this quasi-absolute end, except that we're dealing with certain practical problems where people are only interested in that end. Um, it's like, a, let, let me give you an example. It's a little um, quote, I don't know whether people saw it, it's my, I think right now, and perhaps forever, but I have to see about that, is my favorite quote in the whole history of philosophy. Um, my, I, I'm absolutely uh, hopeless at classical languages, so I'm not making any pretense at this, but I've, I've struggled a bit just because I, I love it so much, which is this quote from Heraclitus, Fusis cryptistai philae, um, meaning, uh, translated or usually as, nature loves to hide, but you can see even with my level of grotesque incompetence at classical languages that this to hide, cryptostai, is the root, shares the root of cryptography. It's a kind of sign that there's a cryptographic problem at the absolute origin of, of Western philosophy. Um, now that um, that is fragment one, two, three of Heraclitus. And fragment and one, two, three is a is a very interesting number because it actually is like a toy version of the kind of prime number based um, cryptographic asymmetry we've been talking about. It's an extremely insecure one, which means you should like it. It means it's aesthetically accessible. Because 1, 2, 3 has two prime factors, 3 and 41. So it's a little model of that um, asymmetry. And in, it's maybe a little bit hard to see because it is so far from the absolute end we've been talking about. You know, if, if the kind of a good piece of RSA encryption would take a supercomputer, 20 trillion years to solve um, fragment one two three one two three would take it like some fraction of a nanosecond to solve but it means it's in our aesthetic play zone you know there's a whole that aesthetic play zone is as large as you want it to be you know so these numerical relationships aren't all you don't need to be dealing with 10 digit 20 digit 30 digit primes you, you can be dealing with, in this case, a two-digit prime and one-digit prime. I mean, um, and the, the reason I'm saying this is that, obviously, the kind of um, occult traditions that have played around with these things are in this zone. Maybe they, you know, they swim a little bit deeper in, but they don't swim down to these zones of deep cryptographic security. They swim down to a zone where someone who involves themselves in playing the game can encrypt and decrypt these messages or make sense of them. And someone, and the people, the vast majority of the audience who simply are not involved in that game, 
will be um, uh, deterred from in science, uh, kept out of its esoteric uh, dimension. So I guess what I'm saying is like, um, you know, the reason that these things seem hard, in the sense you're using that word, hardened, rigid, is because of the application, and the application demands a certain quantitative dimension that is not intrinsic to the, the abstract machinery that we're talking about. The, the, that quantitative level, the fact that you're talking about 128-bit encryption is not, isn't intrinsic in the abstract cryptographic protocol. It's simply to make it secure because people want their money to be secure. They want to be able to pass messages that are truly secure to each other. But there's a whole playground of low security cryptographic procedures. Um, and they're not, they're completely open to people and they're available to use, and I would say have been systematically used. Um, the, I think the obvious example, as I say, is is in various kinds of occult uh, sign systems. Thanks. So the, the potential to encrypt strange attractors or like truly uh, conductive um, signs, I don't know if that's the right word, uh, is fully strengthened by this. Um, so it, it, it could be revolutionary in a way that we haven't seen because it could happen as fast as anything does on the internet now. Is that something like what, what you're suggesting? Actually, I'm not fully getting... Can you just try to gloss sure. that by fractionally different way? Yeah, <clears throat> not. So if, we, if we've reached a level of um, asymmetrical encryption that is uh, flawless um, and a message can be sent, um, that can only be decrypted uh, if the intent is there and the person encrypting it at a non-transcendental right. level, then can't you, isn't there much greater potential for proliferation of, uh, I said strange attractors, but I, I mean for more, I said more conductive, um, I don't know, Symbols is the word I said. I guess I have to think through this a little more. But um, it's just interesting to me that you uh, are now capable of transmitting really big, serious sets of information instantly uh, with complete security. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it obviously depends what your sort of application is. And and where Amy's coming from, there's a, is a very different application to the one that is the mainstream application of the topic we're talking about. And um, so I think there's a certain frustration on that side. But 
my response to that, and I'm sorry, I'm just probably being repetitive here, is that there's nothing intrinsic in the machinery that is producing a partition here. The partition is is totally quantitative, um, and it's just because people have dialed up the the security of the encryption to a point that's functional for these particular um, applications, and there's a whole unexplored zone, and I agree totally with Amy on this, it's just a massively, the potential of this as an aesthetic playground is vast if you dial it back down again, you know, and by dialing back down obviously we're in a way leaving our, we're leaving our topic, we're leaving Bitcoin, we're leaving a cryptocurrency and we're turning it into something else by, you know, what are these cultural machines if they are being applied at extremely low levels of crypto security, um, but just in order to to investigate and explore and play with these semiotic machines, which are extremely intrinsically powerful, that they can do these weird, strange things. And I think people have not, you know, I think that's a missing zone of cultural experimentation, personally. You know, I think there's a lot of extremely advanced, productive experimentation happening up at this high security end. Um, but I think down at the low security end, where it's really being used as a, just an object of aesthetic involvement, it's completely open to being used there. But I just don't see a lot yet happening of that kind. And, and I guess I'm just trying to say there's no reason why it shouldn't happen. Um, it's, it's, yeah. I guess to tie it back to what we were saying last week, I was just thinking it could be not just aesthetically fascinating, but uh, it could undermine, you know, the institution or the academy. Uh, it could provide for a lot of uh, interesting academic development, even all kinds of stuff. But I'm running on, so thanks for your reply. At any stage where people want us to just jump forward to one of these other topics, just just give some kind of indication. I mean, it's definitely possible always to go back. Can I just ask, sorry to just pick on Amy here, but what does SOS actually mean? Is that in some I mean, kind sorry, of Sorry, sorry. No, maybe. <laughs> sorry, sorry for dragging the okay, topic away from where it was supposed to be. Eleven o'clock. Sods. Okay, and this is Australian. It's Australian there. I don't have maybe. to try and numerize it or break it down into prime factors or anything like that. Okay. No, but maybe I'm going to... Okay. Well, I guess we could talk about the Swan paper if anyone's interested in that. Or if this sorry, which one are we talking about? The uh, the 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 thing Ivan linked to this John Roth thing or um, uh, Laura's was, Brett Scott uh, paper. I was looking at the Brain as a decentralized autonomous organization paper, but uh, oh yeah, that, that might have been. 
Okay, no, that sounds great, but I think I might need some prompts about what's going in there. Yeah, no, hang on. This is Mel Melanie Swan's thing, is that? Mm-hmm. Give me the ref again to that. Yeah. Yeah, do you want to, I, you know, want to I thought, It's called blockchain thinking. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I know where we are now. I know where uh, we are. Yeah. 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 Well, it was interesting. I, I, I'll let you take take the lead if you, if if you want to go in that direction. But I was interested in the paper. Yeah, no, do 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 uh, go ahead for sure. Yeah, any comments you have on that? Well, I mean, the you know the proof of intelligence was problematic to me. I mean, we definitely have like proofs of knowledge or knowledges. Um, and her definition of thinking as computation is one we've seen, um, but that's also you know what, what we use for an algorithm. Um, but it was attractive to me too, is just the notion of um, I don't know uploading mind files or you know that's a, a, a VR thing that is. Pretty intriguing mind uploads or personal connect home right. files, as she calls it. Yeah. And so that that was the potential in the blockchain architecture that um, was just fascinating to me. Yeah. No, I thought her paper was absolutely fascinating. Definitely, it's it's one of the most. Whether one, whatever points of it one agrees with or disagrees with or is appalled by or whatever, it's as a piece of philosophical stimulation, it was just extraordinary. Um, so, um, yes, yeah, sorry, this is from this paper we were talking about. is. Chris has brought it up is Melanie Swan's paper that there's a link to on the um on the classroom. Um, sorry, is that Mo? Yeah. Yes, it's just I had to step away for a second. I just missed the reference. Yeah. Yes, that's right. It's already it's already on there. Yeah, Chris was just talking about it. Thank um, you. Is is why it came up. Um. Actually, though. I think uh, if it's okay with you, Chris, we've got scheduled a um, a focus next week. I think on um, on the whole proof of work question and using that as a kind of lever in some of these questions about power and 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 reopening this politics of Bitcoin thing at a at a high level of abstraction. And I think that that context would be very good for the swan piece. So I'm sort of tempted to kick that can down the road one week. I agree. I have a general Sounds wonderful. Yes. Related at least a little bit to cryptography. When you were speaking about identity and the idea of protecting your identity, it makes sense in in the, the sense of having a bank account or a digital wallet and you want to protect somebody from taking your money and making sure 
exchange of money is secure. But I was thinking just generally about uh, the stealing of identity and the duplication of identities um, in the public digital sphere, such as on Facebook, where somebody will steal your images and pretend to be you. And yeah. And then specifically, yeah. because I'm really interested in music, I was thinking about MP3s and the stealing of music. And I was just wondering, are there any examples, <clears throat> and if, if not, why not, of people trying to implement a kind of um, public ledger within music files or right. for images so that you can trace which ones are illegal copies and which ones... Right and bought and so forth because yeah. it seems kind of I mean I don't know how yeah. difficult or unrealistic it is but you know possible uh, actually Ian I think that that is a very um, fully articulated goal of certain sidechain applications you know a sort of application that people would click onto the blockchain precisely in the way that you're saying as a proof of a proof of creation or a, using the, that whole proof of identity structure to uh, stamp something with your authorial or creative signature. So I think that that is definitely going to happen. You know, in the, so far as the whole thing moves at all, I think we can be totally confident that that is an application that we will see mm. happening. Because I, I've I've seen it as a acknowledged, an acknowledged objective already, uh, and I think that you're right to say the technology should totally. That's going with the grain of the technology to a huge extent. There's not nothing that should be particularly um, onerous about that. So uh, all of these. Um, credentialing operations Thank you. to do with uh, a proof of identity at a certain time. Obviously, as we know, the blockchain is at its fundamental thing is this time stamping system to say that at time X this happened and the thing that happened has a signature attached to it. Remember also a coin is just a string of signatures. So the kind of thing you're suggesting is something that is extremely locked into the basic mechanism of the, of the blockchain for sure. Right. Yeah, it's just I find it, the idea as we were talking about uh, with the idea of, as your idea of commute, commutative or commutation yeah. is, I'm, I'm just trying to think how relevant it is here because we're not talking about money. So is that, does that principle apply? Um, to say a music file, the notion of commutation. I mean, it, especially if there's no limit to how many. Nobody says, "Oh, I'm only going to make ten thousand of these MP3s of this particular right. song." Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think we we get back to this thing that anything that's using the blockchain is a coin, you know, so this suffix, x coin, y coin, whatever coin, so this would be, uh, as I say, I, I could, it, you know, if I looked uh, 
search the web for a little bit. I'm sure I could find there is a coin that's already doing this, but I'll just make one up on the spot and say this is like ID coin or whatever, okay? Um, so ID coin does exactly the things that you're saying. But it is a coin. Um, it must be if it's going to use the blockchain. And in order to be a coin, it has to have this economic dimension to it to some extent. Um, so um, now these systems, there's a very interesting one called Namecoin that is supposed to ultimately put the whole of the uh, web address system on. Would would totally get rid of the um, <laughs> okay. Sorry, there's a bit of weird stuff going on. <laughs> yeah. I think you're muted. Second so <laughs> <an> accident. Uh, um, <laughs> yes, it would get rid of the whole uh, the currently existing um, internet uh, institutions to do with. Um, domain name registration or whatever and just put the whole of that machinery onto the onto the blockchain so it's not exactly the same as what you're saying but there is a kind of structural relationship to that but mm -hmm. to, but that too would be a certain it's name coin it's a certain type of coin and therefore it has an ineliminable economic element to it so i think um because because it's only going to work if people have, if not mining, then something that is an analogous to mining, in that there's an economic incentive to maintain and reproduce the system. So if you try to take that element out, then there's simply those guarantees that the system depends upon are taken out too, and it simply won't work. So you have to somehow be, you have to have that enough of a, a speck of economic reality there to provide incentives for people to reproduce uh, the system. So how that would work exactly in this identity system I think is a an interesting an interesting form and I think it would be you would have to spend some micro particle of this coin system uh, in order to stamp your creations with your identity, I think it's that that's what those coins would be for, um, and it would be that the, one of the key things, obviously, of Bitcoin and all of them is that they're fractional to an extreme extent. You know, you can at the moment break down a Bitcoin into a million pieces. If necessary, I, they could do a a soft fork to give you some more divisibility than that. So this is very easy for these systems to do. Anything involving micropayments and these microscopic economic functions. And I think that, that what you would have to do in this, this uh, system is you would have to somehow acquire these ID coins. It would involve some kind of payment and then you would spend them by stamping your production in such a way that they then became indelibly identified.
Great, thank you. Yeah, this thing from Amy is very relevant up here. I'll stick the link in the classroom um, for you later, Ian. Yeah. It kind of relates to the conversation that Mo um, was having with Donna in the classroom as well. I was going to stick it up there before, but I didn't really have time. But yeah, I think there's um there's a whole kind of uh, another conversation that can take place in relation to art and intellectual property as well. Yes. Yes. I, I think also the same applies to the previous point that there's a there's a high security version that will, people will want for the obvious applications. You like if you if you were buying ID coin because you wanted to stamp your music or whatever it was with an indelible identity, you would probably want it to be secure. But there's nothing about it that couldn't allow all kinds of strange artistic games with identity to take place. Um, it's just that you'd obviously again have to have to dial the security index down to a level where it becomes open to various kind of chaotic effects of various kinds. And um, obviously if you did that, there'd be no point complaining if something happened that looked like I, you know, an unpredictable type of identity theft that you, you didn't welcome. This is a, a really loose kind of connection and something that I haven't thought out properly, but I was wondering, um, with the kind of the, the stuff we were talking about the other week about mainstreaming, Yeah. and is there a kind of advantage in the, um, I mean, the fact that we're talking about something that is totally secure, there is no level of deception involved, and the traction that that kind of appearance can have, um, in terms of this goal, perhaps, depending on who you talk to, of Bitcoin going mainstream. Like, right. it's, it's, not, it's not a kind of coup in any sense. It's a complete open um, assertion of a system and its uh, advantages, rather than a kind of takeover from behind. Um, I don't know. This is this is just something that I kind of thought of really roughly. Then. Sorry, but when you see say it, it's not a coup, Sorry, did I just interrupt somebody? Sorry, I don't. I, did I just shout over somebody then? Um, no, I just wanted to get a clarification. Was it? It isn't a coup. What's it? There? Oh, the mainstream of of Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. I mean, because I don't know. It, it it's kind of, of utter sincerity. Yeah, but both sides are equally um, equally infused by the possibility of absolute hard crypto in this thing. I mean you know you've got on the one hand these ultras the the cypherpunk guys and they absolutely are totally uncompromising on this I mean you know to just be 
um, to just be stereotypical about it or stereotyping about it. I mean, let's say they all have their tinfoil hats on, they all think that the NSA is trying to break into their private communications and, and empty their Bitcoin wallets. I mean, those guys, the anti-mainstreamers, are no less uh, attached to the most radical, hard cryptographic security as the mainstreamers are. I think, I think both sides of that debate are attached to absolute crypto security or as close, you know, when I say absolute crypto security, as I say, I don't mean infinite crypto security. I mean crypto security so hard that for all practical purposes, it's unbreakable. And I think that that's a constant across that particular spectrum. And the sort of issues you've been raising about, well, what if, what, what about the other end? What about, um, you know, malleable, plastic, low crypto versions of this, low security versions, is something that is crossing um, at, a, at, another, at another angle to, to both sides of that, that spectrum. Yeah, yeah, good point. What about politis political uh, alignment of uh, cryptography? I mean, it uh, uh, um, it can uh, sounds a very uh, democratic idea uh, that um, uh, anybody can uh, can vote and uh, every vote counts and uh, no vote can be uh, false, uh, can be fake. Uh, but yeah. uh, I I know that you are uh, not big fan of democracy. So uh, uh, how do how do you see uh, seizes seizes? Or you don't think that uh, cryptography have uh, uh, any political alignment? I mean, uh, not influence on politics. I mean only alignment. I think this is a huge issue if anyone is interested in talking about the politics of, of Bitcoin you know it gets back to me to this thing about peer-to-peer -peer. this I think it's the fundamental ideological fork of modernity that if you say uh, we're aiming for pure uncontaminated peer-to-peer -peer relations what is the ideology of that claim you know which as I've said before it seems to me like that is the teleological omega commitment of the deepest modern tradition and I think it goes it splits radically because um, and and all of all political language splits with that um, and the language of democracy uh, can be used as an example of this for sure. Like, is a is a flat? It's flat in this strict Kantian transcendental sense. Flat because of the fact there's no transcendent oversight. There's nothing standing above in on this metaphysical level above the transactional bond between two nodes 
that are not defined at all except imminently by the fact that they're nodes within the system. Those nodes can interact fluidly without any interruption from an external thing. Now, is that a democratic or an anti-democratic relation? And I think that both sides need to be taken extremely seriously. You know, when, when in the deepest and most classical sense, the liberal tradition, holds itself to be profoundly democratic, I don't think that's simply risible. I think it's something that is a serious claim because it's saying that what that peer-to-peer -peer bond means exactly in the terms you say. You know, uh, Every node is formally privileged to the exact same extent within that system. But equally, when you've got these left critiques, like all serious left critiques are left critiques of liberalism in this, again, classical sense. And they say, as Marx does explicitly, um, you know, no, that peer-to-peer -peer bond is what allows any amount of substantial difference to be accumulated without interruption or without objection. So that as soon as you totally formalize that relation as a peer-to-peer -peer relationship, all the things that are counted in the left critique of classical liberalism as forms of social and economic violence is opened. You know, the Pandora's box is open to anything can happen and cannot be stopped. There's no agencies then that can police or interfere from outside. You can enter into any transactional relationship and the substantial outcome of that relationship can be anything at all. There are simply no limits. Um, there's no substantial limits to what that can entertain. So I think, you know, my response to this is to say both sides are interesting and important and the language is split in half in an extremely interesting way by this. You know, I saw on Friday a kind of Bitcoin promo video that totally is using this language. And it's saying, oh, you know, Bitcoin is this new super democratic uh, mode of um, financial organization because everyone gets a vote. And then the next stage of the argument, well, you know, you can't have that it's one person, one vote, because anyone, any person could easily proliferate a whole bunch of false identities. It couldn't be checked. Someone could make up a million false personal IDs and therefore have a million votes. So you can't do that practically. So therefore, you have, and this is what we're going to talk about next week, I hope. Therefore, you have the proof of work system. And therefore, the vote is actually based on the computing power that is available to that node. And as we can see substantially, the, the variation in the computing power available to different nodes is open-ended. I mean, you know, one node can be a Bitcoin mining super entity hidden somewhere in the depths of China producing thousands of Bitcoins every hour. And another node is someone who just has a Bitcoin wallet and, and a mobile phone and has effectively zero 
mining capacity. So obviously from the left, you'd say, well, this is farcical to call this democracy. I mean, it's like, what are you even thinking when you use that language? Now, I don't want to be unambiguous about it like that at all. Um, I, 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 think it, I think the ambiguity is, is crucial because you have to understand it's not an accident, and I don't even think it's maliciously, ideologically deceptive of that um, video to be using that language. You know, I don't think it's talking about democracy just in order to pull uh, wool over people's eyes. I think they really, it's based on a deep belief and a, and a deep historically rooted sense of what democracy is and where it comes from that is pushed into a certain extreme crisis by the purity that has now entered in in terms of the f differential between the formal and substantial characteristics of the relationship you know so the as soon as you really have something that is a pure peer-to-peer -peer system you can see how absolutely indifferent that system is to the substantial distribution that is involved in it and so far you know it's it, I think all these things are happening at the same time it, uh, it reminds me a little bit uh, uh, Bolshevism uh, especially Lenin. Uh, if we take Lenin's text uh, text beyond uh, um, its aims, I mean, uh, we uh, if we f uh, totally forget about uh, s uh, socialistic uh, ideas about uh, the aim to create the uh, com communistic society, uh, beyond all that, it. Uh, um, Bolshevist uh, tactics. It sounds uh, very alike uh, what you said. Now, the, uh, you couldn't the, just expand on that a bit, could you? Excuse me. Could you just expand a little bit? Like why? Where? Why? When you say it sounds very much alike. Oh, uh, I mean. Uh, uh, if we'll take the existence of Bolshevist party beyond its ideology and aims, uh, we'll see that uh, uh, they uh, never uh, had to. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, they never had uh, only one uh, one part. Uh, uh, for example, Lenin uh, insisted uh, that we that uh, communists must uh, avoid. Uh, uh, only uh, left uh, part uh, on the left way, and they must avoid only right way. Uh, it's uh, anything goes, uh, anything goes, uh, uh, which uh, uh, which can uh, help, uh, which can continue the existence of uh, of the party. And uh, which uh, will increase uh, its power, and uh, it is not important. Uh, uh, the ways are not really important, and uh, right. he insisted that uh, we uh, we can work in uh, we Marxists we can can be against uh, 
liberalism against uh, par parliamentarism and so on. But uh, if we want to win, we must, uh, sometimes we must uh, to go to the parliament and walk in the parliament, even it's a very reactionary parliament. Uh, if we want to win, we uh, need to uh, uh, to find uh, allies in uh, uh, among liberals, even if we understand that uh, they are our uh, enemies, and uh, and so on. Right, but but to be honest, this sounds to me almost. It would be easier to see that as the opposite than as something analogous. I'll tell you why I think that, because let's just treat the Bitcoin protocol as a, a, an omega instantiation of the classical liberal model, which I, as I say, characterized by this pure, purely formalistic peer-to-peer -peer relation, defended against any kind of uh, encroachment. Um, so it's a politically closed, commercially open system. Now, um, all of the ambiguities that then emerge from that come from its absolute principled formalism. You can, you can absolutely loathe and despise that formalism and that principle. Of course, you know, you can critique it as we, I don't know whether we're going to get onto the Brett Scott thing, but he is a very interesting left critic of Bitcoin and I think it, he can probably be constructed in this kind of way. I'd have to see how that would roll out in discussion. But it, it's not at all opportunistic. There's no opportunism. In fact, there's it's the zero opportunism, the absolute inflexibility of its principle that is the target of what would be, and what I think already is, a left critique. You know, the critique of if it's broadened in abstraction to algorithmic government, where the rules, the principles, the laws simply cannot be violated irrespective of their substantial outcomes. So even, you know, whatever it leads to substantially, it still is immune from any kind of uh, modification or social answerability. There's no, it's structurally incapable of being um, adapted to deal with its substantial or in response to its substantial outcomes. Whereas it sounds to me that the Lenin position that you're uh, laying out there is the opposite, it's hyper opportunistic in the sense that it's saying that there's a certain substantial outcome that is our commitment and whatever formal procedures are required to reach that substantial outcome should be tolerated. It's the substantial outcome that is the guideline or the principle and there are no formal restraints, you know, any kind of alliance across ideological boundaries is fine um, as long as we keep ourselves focused on the desired substantial result. So in terms of this basic, um, this basic question about hyper-formalism and its kind of realization in the Bitcoin protocol, it seems to me that the Leninist situation is the exact opposite of that.
Well, I I can't uh, uh, answer you right now. Uh, 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 it because I need uh, a little bit more. Uh, uh, I need better uh, understanding of b uh, Bitcoin. It seems. Sure. Well, let's. Um, I I think as I say, we've got we we've got a kind of politics block. Uh, set up in advance for next week so we can definitely throw some Lenin into that uh, for sure I mean if if there was any particular text that you thought was um, particularly relevant to that then you can stick it up on the classroom and and everyone can have a look at it for sure well okay thank you I had a question about the point you just made, Nick, and that you made also at the beginning, the fact that Bitcoin is politically closed and commercially open, right? But, right. But my question is what kind of market is Bitcoin actually creating or has created so far? Because, like, promising that I don't hate like the Bitcoin formalism, I actually love it, and I think I don't particularly like it. Where is it situated, obviously? So, my question is the kind of market and commerce that Bitcoin is creating so far, anyway, is still very much dependent on perhaps what I see or I understand as a kind of transcendental entity, which is the US dollar, right? So, any kind of commercial, speculative, generally financial venture that is like, I don't know, undertaken these days in, involving Bitcoin is generally related or is generally compared somehow or depending on the price of the dollar, right? Or the price of Bitcoin compared to the dollar. So this is where, I don't know, I'm sorry I keep nagging about, <laughs> about I don't know, yeah. what's outside of the formalism of Bitcoin, but I think you cannot not take that into account. I mean, no. unfortunately, because again, I think the formalism of the blockchain is, I don't know, it's amazing yeah. and it has a lot of potential. But unfortunately, what I see, again, is like a series of like, I don't know, it's, it's a big, I don't know, capture of perhaps this, I don't know, the surplus of, of the blockchain in terms of what it offers, in terms of, as you were saying, like the open secret of, I don't know, this new kind of like cryptographic communication. So, I don't know if, if you have any... Yeah. I don't know, any comment on this idea? Yeah. yeah. No, I, 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 I do have a comment for sure. I, I, I mean, first of all, I think this is like super important. Um, and I think there's two things I just immediately say in in, in relation to the the point you've just made. The, the first is that the relation to the U.S. dollar seems to me almost entirely a straightforward consequence of the position of the US dollar in the world. You know, like why do people fundamentally quote the price of Bitcoin in US dollars? Isn't it the same as the reason they quote the price of oil in dollars and the price of gold in dollars and the price of everything in dollars? is because of the position of the US dollar in the world. It doesn't seem to me at all that this is an artifact that's coming from the side of Bitcoin. It's that simply Bitcoin has arisen in a world 
in which the US dollar is the international reserve currency, however sort of unstably right now, and, and therefore we automatically talk about it in those terms that insofar as Bitcoin is going to uh, either whatever Bitcoin does to the world financial system is going to be something it does to the US dollar first of all because the world the US dollar simply represents the world financial system and the the second point is also the big complication just on a concrete level of what you said would have been China like when Bitcoin was big in China, it was dwarfing everything else. I could see it live, you know, there's, there's, I'll try and find the link for this. You, you can go to a site and it just shows you in real time the Bitcoin activity in the world. And these Chinese Bitcoin exchanges were just glowing incandescently and overwhelming everything else, you know. And um, for, that's for a lot the Chinese economy is weirdly virtualized in terms of money. Like the amount of online financial transactions that happen in terms of just retail in China is vast, you know. And and um, brick and mortar retailers in China are really threatened actually by this. The 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 as a marketplace in this just absolutely straightforward sense of just buying your baby's diapers over the net, China is just extraordinary place. Um, so there's that factor, but more importantly is there is so much hot, corrupt money and money laundering demand in China, it's unbelievable. So, you know, the traditional ways, it's obviously Macau is the world's greatest gambling center now because you have party officials turning up in Macau with their suitcases of, of, of hot money that they want to launder through the gaming tables and if they only get half of it back that's fine you know it's a and and bitcoin for a long time seemed to be just a really nice low cost money laundering facility that totally fitted into that level of demand so for both of those reasons it was to, it was just huge um and and as i say just dwarfing bitcoin activity in other centers but then obviously the it i think the chinese financial authorities really didn't like what seemed to be things slipping out of their control in this way and they stamped down pretty hard on it and people have said i think persuasively that that basic market pattern of bitcoin that it goes up to over 1100 dollars and then crashes down to its current level of bit over 200 or whatever is totally based upon Chinese the Chinese authorities so I think the fact that we've seen 80% or something close to that of the Bitcoin value being vaporized by perhaps I mean I'm not saying this is dogmatically certain but let's just hypothetically because of Chinese state um, intervention is some indication of what was happening previously there I think yeah but so yeah no I totally agree with you but again I don't know when we talk about the the value of Bitcoin we still talk about the value of Bitcoin against the dollar one Bitcoin is still one Bitcoin right I don't know I've, I I still have I don't know troubles to and I don't know to 
to divorce the idea of you know like an analysis of Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. From you know the rest that that it's like embedded in, and and I guess it perhaps yeah. relates to also well like the, the the link that Ivan posted about the like the pricing surface of of, right. of the market, because in yes. my opinion we would have a very different pricing surface and of the sources like if if you know if it were according to the logics of the blockchain unfortunately there's no pricing surface in terms of Bitcoin to my I don't know the way I see it it would yeah. be perhaps something different I don't know I'm just yeah, yeah. well I think the thing is that the the, the absolute formalism of Bitcoin mm. means that it's not ever going to do people's political work for them unless their political work is for algorithmic government. You know, it, yeah. if if the Chinese, if the UN dominated the world in the way the dollar does, then we would be thinking of the Bitcoin in UN or whatever it is going to be. You know, Bitcoin is just intrinsically absolutely neutral about that and obviously that's again one of these ambivalent things that one can take that as the basis of a critical stance in relation to it or one can celebrate that and you know it in itself is just a fact about this a purely formal system is that it's not going to it's not going to take sides in a certain way you know it's only when you set up the deep ideological issue that that the stance of algorithmic neutrality is itself a politics and therefore a side, which I, I think is highly defensible. Um, but it's only then that it, it is caught within this system of ideological antagonism. And, and once you're at a more concrete level about the particular structures of the world order, mm -hmm. it's going to be neutral on that however frustratingly that, that that might be. Yeah, I actually agree with you on the fact that, I don't know, I tend to think that there is econom economy, economics in itself is, is apolitical perhaps, and, and it's up to the sort of political formations that take up certain, like, I don't know. I mean, economics, I, I think, the way, I, I don't know, I guess it says, like, economics as a, as a tool of, of certain, like, political... I don't know, projects, but in itself perhaps it's, I don't know, I, I don't, I don't, I, I struggle to agree with, with, I don't know, positions that see money as intrinsically political, for instance, I don't know, I tend to see it the other way around, but again, I, I don't know, Right. I tend to, I yeah. don't know, I, exactly, I don't know, I still can, can, I don't know, make up my mind on a lot of things, <laughs> I guess. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, this obviously then intersects with the with the uh, Brett Scott piece you yeah. you linked to, and and it it is very interesting. I mean, I, I I'm not sure really. This might be too big a thing to throw in here now, but the in his first point, this money emerges from barter point. Um, he that for him is a myth, obviously. And it's re it's referring to what I think is one of the most interesting. Well, no, whether it's really div 
developed enough to call it a dispute yet. It's more of an intrinsic antagonism that, that hasn't really been worked out argumentatively between this the position that really comes from Karl Menger um, and is treated by the Austrians as their kind of gospel money, which is this barter position that shows money by solving the problem that is called technically the double coincidence of wants in barter systems. You get to a money system and gold is then adopted as that currency of choice and remains for the Austrians obviously the model the model uh, money as a, as a valuable commodity which is then taking it to a second line. And the much more recent and you know I think for a lot of people very attractive and interesting position of David Graeber which is refusing that model and which actually Brett Scott I think a bit hastily is taking as gospel on the other side uh, which he seems to just say look it's now proven anthropologically that money is does not arise from but I mean to me that is uh, vastly fast and I have to sort of see it as a political choice rather than a theoretical choice but I, I think both of those positions are very important and need to be fully explicated and they both are into it, they both pull out very interesting things I mean obviously what David Graeber is saying is that um, um, the state and debt are always intrinsic to these money systems and if you have a large-scale standardized system of money that's already intrinsically involving these kind of institutions um, and that's a point that I think is important unquestionably important to make but um, the if we did get a chance to dig into this kind of exchange the text that I really want to make sure people have seen because I think it's also crucially important is this Nick Shabo paper called Shelling Out and I've sort of pushed it hard on early reading lists because I think that the Nick Shabo position really doesn't easily get captured by that opposition. I think uh, for one thing it goes back very very far I mean he takes it right into sort of the Paleolithic, deep Paleolithic and sort of human, early human evolution um, so it's sort of um, it, it, the sort of David Graeber anthropological history move just doesn't get any purchase on it and it manages to capture it I think the important phenomena from both sides of that it shows how money is tied up with notions of debt right from the start and it also shows how money um, resolves these barter problems so I think yeah I think that is a very interesting triangle but I'm probably going I'm going beyond what we can digest in this at this point here tonight yeah sorry the last point I I read and I really enjoyed the Nick Schaber paper because I guess that's a bit he's got a position a bit more like Mangarian right like he's I don't know, he tends to see it more like in the Austrian way, from my understanding. But on the other side, uh, the way that he 
describes uh, the way in which money, like, sort of was, I don't know, originated, it makes sense. Uh, is that, you know, it's a perfect, useful tool, like, that facilitated exchange without, I don't know, creating this uh, dynamics of accumulation and, and, and like, well, obviously it was, again, paleolithic. But again, I don't know, this is my point, I don't know, I don't, I tend not to agree with all the, like, positions, all the left leftist critique of Bitcoin, but on the other side, I don't know, I don't really consider myself like a libertarian or a crypto anarchist on the other side. But I find it, I don't know, right because the blockchain, right, is neutral. I find it quite frustrating, I don't know, the fact that there is, there hasn't been, I don't know, it hasn't been possible to create perhaps a system that again makes sense uh, the same way that perhaps the ancient like proto money made sense in those days. The kind of collectibles, right. obviously we're not talking about collectibles, collectibles like now, but yeah, I don't know. Like it seems to me that the direction we're going now, also with the like peer-to-peer -peer kind of like political perhaps uh, like I don't know, um, formalism or, or I mean that apolitical, but still, like, this, I don't know, finally, like, managing of, of doing without or, like, eliminating the third, the transcendental third party, it seems to me that it's moving increasingly in the direction of, like, yeah, the neoliberal, not the neoliberal, the, the liberal, the, li the traditional, like, classical economic system of, doing away with the, I mean, of, of, I don't know, the invisible hand of the market. So, I don't know, I'm, I guess I'm trying to look for an alternative, but I don't know, like, if it's right. really with the, yes. Uh, yes. It, I mean, it is very, it's a very interesting thing, and there's obviously is some very smart writing happening all, all around mm. this, this topic. And, um, I think the thing is there's a really difficult, for the left side of this discussion, there's a very difficult problem which is to do with the game theoretical use of money because because um, everybody wants other people's money to be political and their own money to be apolitical. I mean, no one has a game theoretical interest in the politicization of their own money, you know, and so obviously these left, these left positions really require people to enter into. Well, I think it might be. I mean, I might be being over hasty if I say unrealistic game theoretical positions, but they're positions that certainly require a very large degree of collective purpose being um, operational in people's choice of a money system and operation of a, of a money system. Um, you know, you, you go back to the sort of um, the, the Shabo thing and I agree that he tends to be 
in this lineage. I think obviously the tech, this whole cypherpunk, cryptographic, game theoretical thread is very tends to be very cozy with Austrian uh, economic ideas because I think they, I think they share a lot of the same assumptions about agents and what counts as kind of local rationality for an agent. Um, so they will expect, they won't count a theory as being attractive to them unless it works in a situation where the agents in that system are pursuing quite narrowly conceived self-interest. You know, so that obviously puts them in a, on a certain side of the political spectrum. Um, but The, the, the Shapo thing, like, it it goes so deep into this biological, I mean, really is on the, on the kind of cusp, isn't it, of the emergence of the human species being tied up with this, the, the, this use of collectibles. And he's got a kind of, it's a hypothetical claim, I'm assuming, rather than a particularly strong one, but it's extremely provocative, which is that Neanderthals were mm. probably smarter than modern humans, but they didn't operate with collectibles. So that that the the kind of evolutionary advantage given to our ancestors by these forms of proto currency was so mm. overwhelming that it allowed for the complete displacement of an actually, uh, in one narrowly defined sense, cognitively superior species. Um, so sorry, I'm rambling. What I really no. wanted to wanted to get to with that was was just this game theory element of it, you know, where the, it's all cashed out in these extremely basic um, these extremely basic imperatives to do with with just feeding feeding your kin, really. I mean, your tribe, yeah. it can be extended to, for sure. But, you know, he says the thing about these collectibles is they actually work as, like, fat reserves. Um, you know, because you're only you're knocking out a mammoth a month or something like that, and for th three weeks you don't have enough food. And if you can engage in an exchange relationship with another group who just happen to be out of sync with you in their hunting pattern. You just simply have um, nourishment that would not be available to you under these other circumstances. So that level of just, you know, raw incentives is obviously what people are up against on the other side if they're trying to kind of use money as a tool for some very highly theorized purpose of kind of collective endeavor or something of that kind. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. I mean, it's not clear to me, for instance, in Graeber's work, what his positive suggestion is, anything like as, it's not as clear as his 
critique, has it? I mean, I don't know whether people disagree with that. You know, he he obviously he wants to criticize a whole notions of money that would tend to legitimize it as it as it exists, and I'm sure would be extremely critical of, of Bitcoin and what's behind it. But in terms of what he's proposing as a monetary regime, it seems to really get the picture into focus. Okay, maybe the last thing, if no one has. <laughs> um, I had another question regarding the, like, I don't know, game theory and, and I don't know, which again was in the Nick Zabo piece uh, together with them. Um, he was referring to evolutionary, uh, uh, I don't know, evolutionary theory, like, and... Uh, it seems to me that, I mean, game theory, as much as this evolutionary theory based again on, on the on the principle of the selfish gene, right, that works more or less in making like strategic decisions based on game theory, isn't that like a bit reductive? It's, I mean, it's just a model, right? So it's inherently reductive. I mean, it's a model, like game theory is a model of of, I don't know, the decision process. I guess right. obviously there are so many factors that that intervene in, I don't know, informing the decision. So even there, I don't know, I have, I, I can't really, I don't know, I, I find it hard to accept, uh, which was in fact my one, perhaps, like, question in the next example piece, is his, I don't know, reliance on game theory and right. on evolutionary theory based on game theory again. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. But I, I think this is right. And again, I, I saw a piece recently. It's a, it's a bit off our topic because it's a general critique of what they call neoliberalism. But it really, uh, I thought, was fascinating because it draws the genealogy of, of, of neoliberalism, as it calls it, through this game theory tradition in a way that I've never seen done so clearly before. And for instance, John Nash, who's critical in our tradition, you know, referred to massively. I mean, some people even said a, a bit crazily, probably, but that they've even said maybe Satoshi Nakamoto is John Nash. You know, that's how close it is. Um, and, and to put that tradition going through Thomas Schelling and all of the game theoretical process, then going into public choice theory and all of this as being the core intellectual momentum heading into what we now see 
or is being uh, denounced, obviously, as this neoliberal political and economic culture. And, and I thought it was very interestingly done. Um, and so I think for sure, you know, it's probably necessary to the game theory is probably this crucial nexus, as you're saying, for these for this political decision making. You know, um, and the people I think who were involved with just because they're the Bitcoin people, they like game theory because it's formalistic. You know, just like the the protocol itself. You have nodes, you have agents, you don't have to specify anything about them except that they will play to win rationally. And and I don't think the assumption there, which is again obviously derided as kind of isomorphic with notions of homo economicus, even with the notion of perfect markets, with a whole series of these Pentacle constructs or regulative ideas in the Kantian sense. But I don't think it's saying people are rational. It's saying that selective pressure is directed towards the rewarding of rationality. That the ra the whoever plays this game rationally will win. So in these game theoretical setups, you know, wh whether it's prisoner's dilemma or any of the, the chicken or any of these kind of things. It's not, it's not to say we are going to assume axiomatically that the agents involved are rational. It's rather that um, this, is the, this is the framework of this game and if you don't play it rationally you will lose this game. And when you then translate that into a sort of in the broadest sense, Darwinian framework, obviously most comfortably in biology, um, but but then these analogies between Darwinian evolution and structures of kind of competitive market economics are are not trivial. I mean, there's something going on there because because when you translate it into biological terms, this claim the rational player will win become something that you're actually plugging into this selective machine your reality you know so you so th this is why biologists it's no coincidence that game theory has proven to be an extremely useful tool for them because if you're going to be darwinian at all and you're going to say that there is um, there is a process of natural selection of successful strategies, then game theory is just saying, well, look, let's formalize what is a successful strategy. And we would expect, therefore, that in all of these examples, wherever we're looking, you know, even at the most elementary organism, an organism that is bad at playing games and game theory tells you what that is will be selected out so so that competence game theoretical competence is something you would expect to be selected for by any kind of darwinian mechanism where whatever level that is operating at
and uh, so I think that's where, for instance, Nick Shabo is coming from. Um, Thanks. So this is a question completely out of um, some kind of like hazy space, but right, um, good. doesn't that suppose a kind of a particular account of reason that it's instrumental in order to play the you know the game? Um, and I wonder maybe if um, right if you thought about this. This, this kind of instrumental kind of discourses, it's also the kind of reason that to me seems to be prevalent on, in, in places like Less Wrong and the way that reason is talked about there. Um, compared to, to the kind of reason that... So, sorry, um, sorry, I just missed that. Prevalent where? In West Wrong, that sounds like to me. In, in where? Le less Wrong, the, the, the blog. Oh, 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 yes, you know, that rationalist. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there's a big socio micro-sociological intersection between those guys, or maybe not big actually, because yeah. when you actually, the ideological surveys of le less wrong was always weirdly leftist actually, but that surprises me, yeah. But but there's still a particular account of reason that's operative here, right, and sure. it is, I think, yes. an instrumental account. Um, yeah. And I was wondering if you'd thought about alternative accounts of reason, and um, I mean, to, to kind of give a, a, a fuzzy um, indication of where I'm heading with this yeah, without sure. having to explain it right now. Yeah. Towards Peirce, towards the kind of stuff that Reza Garistani is talking about um, and, and, and Ray Brassier and other people. This autonomous reason, which definitely returns to a pseudo-Hegelian idea right, of sure. a, like an autonomous unfolding um, yeah. reason, then, but one that is completely I mean, transcendental. If, if um, that's yeah I, okay sorry am I I know I'm interrupting you but I, I'm just my my big question then is like has that broken totally with naturalism like is if I was then to say well how could such a thing cut like if I was saying look reason only exists because it's instrumental it's not because there's some notion of instrumental reason is preferred in advance. It's just that the instrumentality of reason is the actual condition of possibility for reason existing at all within a naturalistic Darwinian framework. If reason wasn't instrumental, it would not exist, and except as maybe some kind of weird spandrel. I mean, there are exotic, there are exotic accounts of how something can somehow slip past natural selection by accident. But if this thing is something of huge importance, of like almost cosmic significance, it seems to me that's a weak foundation to rest on. And so you really want to say, well, how naturalistically could this thing possibly have come to be? Now obviously that's why instrumental reason is is the is the way it is, and why it's defined the way it is, and how it how it's defined is that 
it's that thing, it's that characteristic of reason that allows reason to be selected for. And if you take that away, why, where has reason come from? Why should it exist? Why, how could it exist? Yes. Mo, was that you? Indeed it was. I, so, I, I don't really know if you want to elaborate on that. This, this, this question and answer clarified so much for me. But, okay, so um, two things. There's a, an account, um, for example, in Sellers about how reason, the kind of autonomous reason that is distinguished from instrumental reason, actually does evolve completely through natural selection um, via kind of like pattern recognition. Um, and, um, and kind of develops like a conceptual um, ability on top of that basic kind of instrumental reason, right. which leads it to the uh, okay. that it develop concepts. And then allows a kind of an, a completely pragmatic um, use of, of this particular um, faculty in order to, to kind of, um, you know, it, to, you don't have to um, posit a gap between, between natural selection and the laws of nature. Um, and, well, and conceptual reasoning. But look, I mean, I'm partly just confessing my ignorance of this tradition, um, but if it's the case that this other non-instrumental reason, inverted commas, emerged out of pattern recognition, isn't that totally instrumental? I mean, pattern recognition is, there's pattern recognition because pattern recognition is instrumental. I mean, if pattern recognition without instrumental value would also not have any selective reinforcement and would po pose the same problem that we're starting off with here. So I don't know how you've moved beyond instrumentality. I mean, it's like if it, at the very moment something starts happening that is non-instrumental, it is no longer uh, it's no longer subject to Darwinian reinforcement and therefore its existence becomes miraculous in the naturalistic sense. So maybe can I can I can I just interject? Yeah, sure. So maybe here what we're talking about is like the 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 liminality between instrumental reason and instrumentalized reason is the ED that kind of like make a difference between what Amy is uh, sort of like critiquing and what you're reasserting. So instrumental reason and instrumentalized reason because the ED makes it sort of like a some sort of like a a sinister human agency that's trying to somehow actually take the instrumental reason and totally distort it and put it towards particular agendas. I don't know if it was if it was helpful or useful what I said, but 
I'm asking that. But it, would Amy be be prepared to go along with that? I wonder. I mean, uh, I'm not sure I understand exactly what you're getting at, Mo. But the thing that jumped to mind when you were saying that was the the distinction that um, Reza makes, probably coming from someone else. Reza's um, Reza's Reza's, Reza's distinctions always instrumentalized reason. I think, from what I remember. And I don't know, maybe we should get Reza in here. Yeah, totally. That's why I said, where's Reza? <laughs> Not instrumental reason. Because the way, the way you brought the pattern recognition example and basically how reason proceeds is through instrumentality. I mean, that's why I thought like Nick was like really right on when he said that. Like I said, I'm just, I'm just chucking this out there because it... Um, into my mind when you guys were talking about the kind of the agent of these particular theorizations of, of economics and I, I wondered yeah um, and I, 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 I think know, it's I helped out of a completely neutral position as well sure. from observing the way that these two no, discourses it, kind of antagonize each other sure it's it's very helpful and to be honest though I'm my question remains the same is is whether the claim to a non-instrumental rationality, so this isn't Mo's distinction, this is the one that I thought was at play here, whether that involves an explicit repudiation of Darwinian naturalism, or whether it somehow thinks that it is compatible with that naturalistic framework. Um, so that's something I'm just not clear about but it, but if it is compatible then it's hard to see how you could have leverage against this role that game theory is playing in these discussions because game theory um, at its most abstract level is simply attaching itself to the instrumentality of reason there's no notion of rationality in it that is anything other than that uh, that way of processing a problem that will lead to winning games or arriving at optimal outcomes in games and those games obviously when you put it into this deeper naturalistic context are just these survival games um, therefore you know winning those games is simply uh, a precondition of existing in the first place within this within this naturalistic grid, a tradition or heritage of having of having orientation such that games have been won over the last four billion years is is how everything has been put together within this framework. Um, so if you're gonna say if you if you're gonna say that this game theoretic framework is somehow a limited one, then that seems to me to appeal to some foundation of existence that is radically independent of this kind of naturalistic process. I, I don't want to um, put words in anyone's mouth, but I think that the yeah, account sure. um, goes that it's that uh, this kind of conceptualization is consonant with um, right. uh, with the account of, of 
like the emergence of consciousness, natural selection. Right. It does, and an instrumental reason. It's not. It doesn't exclude it in any way, but it then right. provides a layer on top of that. Right. And this is, you know, this is the sticking point, which corresponds right. with human agency, which gives agency over and above natural laws, so that there is a way of intervening and manipulating them um, that allows traction in order to divert, um, you know, whatever the universe is doing towards a different end. And this is where you get what looks like the imposition of a... Um, a bunch of transcendent regulations, except that if the account is correct, they are emergent from within the transcendental space, game space, or whatever. But right. I mean, you know, whether or not that's how tractable that is is, is a you know a different. Yes, question. I mean it's it's intriguing, definitely, and and obviously the emergentism of it is 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 interesting, but there's a, also a kind of paradoxical side to it because, um. You know, games theory is extremely agent-oriented theorizing, isn't it? I mean, it's really, you know, there'd be a... I don't think this is used because of the fact that it just is so functional and, Dar and, the, and the Darwinian tradition has now put together such good translation protocols for this. But there's at least a, a kind of implicit or virtual hyper-naturalistic objection to the use of games theory in deep biology that would precisely say it's, you know, aren't you being too teleological to use these models about rational agents when you're describing the evolution of bacterial nets, you know, or, I mean, I it would go in exactly the opposite direction in a way to this to this line of critique, and it would say the the games theorists are retrospectively transporting these agency models way beyond their zone of application into systems that obviously not only don't have consciousness or social identities or explicit deliberated purposes, but maybe don't have any kind of nervous system whatsoever. Um, so what I'm saying there is, you know, with this supervenient layer of of non-instrumental rationality being being postulated in the name of agency, how is that producing kind of leverage on the theory of games? It seems it seems that the theory of games is already like talking about agents almost to a fault. I suppose that it just means that it's not the only paradigm within which to work, that it provides one, but you could perhaps, um, I don't know, build an economics on a normative paradigm <laughs> to bring out the N-word. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I really, I'm, I am just kind of like throwing knives into the dark right here. So. Yeah, I mean they're very interesting knives. I, I apologise that for my incompetence to to kind of catch them properly equally. I mean, you know, I find this kind of hazy Hegelian very hard to 
very hard to process adequately. So it would it would be interesting to, um, yeah. Well, it, it is called the. Are they there's that aphorism like entering the game of giving and asking for reasons, space of reasons, whatever. Um, and, and that synoptic picturing, I'm talking to settlers now, uh, the scientific image, whatever, it, it is rule-based, you know, it, whether these rules are with those of game theory is uh, doubtful, but, like, you know, the, the, the rule pattern process um, layering of that autonomous reason it does seem fairly instrumental, um, I think. So it's interesting to think about in that way, too. Yeah. Mo, Mo you have yeah. something to say about this. Well, I'm, I actually I, I, was just I'm, thinking about, like, wh about what, what you were saying. So give me a couple of minutes. To see what I can what I can think of because I immediately noticed what you what you were saying was already kind of like pointing to me. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just um... the the way for me the way for me the way for me to collapse it into this conversation or into the conversation about games or conversation about instrumentality is to think to think a little bit like what do you call it STS and like science studies and how like the intersubjectivity of the establishment of what is the scientific image, what goes into mm -hmm. each discipline's own reliance still on manifest image to even come up with scientific models, and then what it takes at the level of uh, meta-science or philosophy for these disciplinal images that are still quasi-manifest to sort of like leave their manifest re res residues and kind of like come together and be telescoped together into a uh, scientific image. These things do not do not happen in a vacuum, right? And hmm. they all involve some form of uh, like instrumentalization and game playing and kind of like building of uh, intersubjectivity takes all sorts of like rules and games and I mean that's what I can think of right now to relate sellers to the conversation right and see if it's if 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 a Salarsian idea of uh, rationality is compatible with what Nick is talking about in terms of instrumental reason yeah yeah I think I mean it, uh, sorry it, if I'm understanding this right, it would have to be that this this Salazian, um superstructure could it, it would not be reducible to saying um, its criterion for validity or its criterion for um, let's yeah, let's just say its ultimate criterion of this rationality would not be reducible to the fact that it is a game winning a game winning orientation i mean this 
I mean, obviously, my sort of natural inclination here, and sort of you can take natural as <laughs> as as deliberated as possible, um, is to sort of think that what's being postulated is almost some kind of um, inflection point of species suicide, at which the successfulness, the actual, uh, the instrumental value of its cognitive processes are somehow cross this threshold and cease to be a criteria and it opens up this wonderful domain of uh, dysfunctional cognition that can be completely incompatible with these naturalistic conditions of preservation and perpetuation um, and allow obviously all kinds of things, you know, and you can respond, oh, you know, the fact that this is losing, this is losing the game does not matter, you're not understanding, this is, this is a, you know, meta-instrumental, transcendent, normative rationality, you, you, you're not getting at it, at its value, at its importance, at its emancipatory, uh, power if you're reducing it to successfully winning a game. Um, but then obviously from the other side one would expect it to therefore tend to lose the game and therefore be edited out, edited out of some naturalistically regulated reality. Mm. I think the main point is that it doesn't j just make game theory a measure of intelligence. It posits a kind of intelligence that operates within game theory successfully, but then isn't limited right. to that kind of intelligence. I mean, and, and the ultimate upshot of this is that it becomes a program for an artificial intelligence in, in, in all of the people I've referred to. So you get a right. different level of intelligence as your, right. as your AVI. Um, but that's maybe partly because you don't want that intelligence to be too good at winning games, is that? So in a way, it's a kind of um, it's a kind of impositional altruism that will prevent this superintelligence acting, play, being too good at playing games, and therefore being a threat. Is that? Am I just like projecting my own paranoid? framework onto this situation. No, I mean I think I think it's developed explicitly as a way out of that paranoid framework. And whether or not that makes it less um, real is the yeah. question. I mean but obviously I from the side of the of the paranoid brutalism, given a fragmentary set of development programs, um the competitive dynamics between them will favor the kind of uh, raw instrumental versions of intelligence over the normative um, sort of altruistic versions of, of intelligence and therefore your AI, your, your cuddly AI program is nice from the perspective of the humans who are feeling threatened by it, but it's it's incompetent 
in comparison to these more sort of um, just yeah raw game playing intelligences that are being put together elsewhere. I mean, it really is this thing about whether there is some kind of horizon of the Darwinian criterion. Do you think that's right? Yeah. I was going to ask if you think that the proof of work um, or intelligence in Bitcoin could evolve um, in a corresponding manner to this discussion of instrumentality. I mean, uh, or like, uh, how can mining? I mean, can it just get more and more complicated, and can just certain people have developed the capacity for it, or do you think there's potential for a broadening of that? But, but then again, that might be leading into what you wanted to talk about. Next. Yeah, I think it does actually a lot. Um, but but there's no reason why we can't at least entertain it a little bit. I mean, obviously, the interesting thing about this proof of work thing is that it is designed in some ways to preclude intelligence in the sense that if these puzzles that were being solved were such that there was some... Um, they were, it was open in principle to some dis mathematical discovery by an intelligent program that allowed it to massively increase its hashing rate out of proportion to its actual investment of computing power, then that would subvert the Bitcoin system. I mean, that would put the whole Bitcoin economy in the hands of this super-intelligent computer. And so the whole thing has actually been designed to prevent that outcome. You know, the sort of zone where that type of dynamics could occur, you're out in this space and these and these other ones. The the Bitcoin protocol itself is actually intrinsically protected against mm. superintelligence getting it represented in the system. It's fascinating. So it purely continue, thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's, that's it for sure. But I mean, it's like the relation between Bitcoin and superintelligence production is certainly going to be more circuitous and complicated than the notion of the, um, of the actual hashing industry leading up some track towards artificial intelligence, which is something that has supposedly been prevented. I mean, there, you know, if there's mathematical proof in a way in the sense that the problems that are being set, the, 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 the hash function it has to fulfill is one that cannot be resolved except by brute force. And therefore, in, in theory, by the most stupid possible um, the most stupid possible thought process. And this is something we find everywhere, obviously. It's like, uh, it's the same with the um, these asymmetric functions we've been looking at today in terms of cryptography. It's like, if there was possibly a, an intelligent <laughs> mathematical solution for prime factorization, then crypto security would be immediately vaporized. 
you know, because someone somewhere could find a way from extracting the two prime factors from some um, 256 bit prime number and bang, you know, you've, you've lost your asymmetry immediately uh, and that, that whole cryptographic system is completely destroyed. Um, so that too, you know, the thing about um, the, the net of Erastosthenes with primes is it is in exactly the same way as these hash functions, stupid brute force method that you just try, 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 work your way through by trial and error through the whole series until eventually you hit the right number. And obviously because this is something we've you know, also been talking about, Darwinian mechanics are, are the same, to some, at least to some extent, in terms of trial and error, trial and error systems. Thanks. So I just wanted to say that we got about five minutes before the t next time is up. If you guys want to talk about camouflage, maybe, and I'm really interested in that conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe someone should bring it up, at least maybe as a starting point, because maybe five minutes is not enough. <clears throat> Laura, do you want to talk about camouflage or Amy? I think maybe I talked enough. <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think anyone. I'm the only one no. who's talked enough. Jake is not with us today, which is kind of like just a big hole in the class without Jake. Or like it's like. <laughs> well, the one thing I would say is that I find the the camouflage of the blockchain completely uncomplicated. Um in that it doesn't seem to be uh, the, the fact that it doesn't really work on any complex set of levels um, means that it's, its camouflage seems to be I don't know not particularly interesting and I don't know if it if it would work in that kind of sense if we want to talk about it in, in those terms yes but um I mean, if the camouflage is between what something is going to be and what it appears as in its initial state, is that something that could really be denied to Bitcoin? I mean, it's like, I think right across the whole spectrum from deep antagonist to massively enthusiastic fan, there's at least the understanding that this could be something massive and unpredictable and as you say what we can see now is something that looks so simple and formulaic that it can be presented in this open source public document so I mean isn't that a kind of camouflage of a kind of virtual event camouflaged as a as a, a piece of public open software yeah for sure I, was, I wasn't thinking about it stupidly I wasn't thinking about it in terms of temporality I mean I think this is this open secret thing to me is that precisely it always will be open to your kind of objection the way it hides 
is not the traditional it's not traditional camouflage it doesn't hide by not being seen it hides by being completely visible but being in some way um, twinned to an obscurity you know by this systematic relationship and it seems to me that that's definitely what Bitcoin does would that be then um, like it, it would suit perhaps um, the, the term like it would, it would be more a terms uh, sorry a kind of steganography than cryptography a kind of a kind of what? A kind of steganography. Right. So it's it's something where the the thing that's being smuggled right. in um, is like the key. I know that doesn't work perhaps because the key in steganography is completely in the open. It just needs to be right. decrypted. Yeah. I don't know. I need to think on that more. Yes, these different types of um, obscurity, for sure. But I mean. I think it's definitely the case that there is this threshold of transition that is marked by this history of cryptography where a certain it, it, it previously was the case that something was encrypted if the the encryption if the cipher was simply hidden you know, it was conspiratorial, it was transcendent in that sense of being, it's not in circulation, it's outside as a, as a, as a precondition of the system and it has been, it has been shared by conspiracy, not by cryptographic communication. And then you cross into this whole new regime where, um, which is the regime of the open secret where the, the um, form of hiding is completely different. Um, and and yes, I don't know. I mean, it's I'm just trying to say. I think these questions about camouflage, well, steganography is like I can see. Um, sorry, I missed who. I think it was Chris saying about, uh, or was it? God, sorry. About Burroughs, anyway, yeah, Chris saying about Burroughs saying draw as little attention to something as possible. So that's kind of the steganography thing, isn't it? Where it hides by you not seeing there's anything hide hidden at all. Now that's very different, that's very different to the basic type of hiding that we've been looking at this time. Because everyone knows, if there's a public key, everyone knows there's a private key. So there's no secretion of the secret at all. The secret is hidden by this mathematical relationship, not by the fact that you don't know there's something there. But whether Bitcoin as a whole has some kind of steganographic invisibility to it, because that is implied by your criticism, isn't that? I mean, when you say it's simply you know, my eyes bounce off it, dazed with boredom. 
is the, is the steganographic relationship, mm -hmm. isn't it? To say there's there's not a it's not sucking you into it. Yeah, yeah. You turned that around on me completely. Nice. Thanks. <laughs> so well, I wasn't trying to be deliberately sadistic about it. I thought it was a. Uh, I thought it was kind of the point, but maybe I'm... Maybe no, no, no. Mind. I enjoyed it. God, all this, like, uh, Nick's one-liners can all be, like, really popular, like, Facebook statuses. <clears throat> I really enjoyed the one you said earlier on. You said, I hope I'm not projecting my paranoia framework onto this, for which... Amy had a very great and opposite response. Anyways, our, um, we're now a little bit over, like a few minutes. So if, if anyone had, has a final uh, question or comment, this is the time to make it, or we can maybe end on this note. Yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of things that are going on in the sidebar that I'll definitely be interested to follow up. I'm actually copying yeah, it right sure. now to paste it in the classroom. Yeah. I didn't lose the session today, so I'm able to do it myself, and I'm doing it right now. Okay, yeah, that, every, that's greatly appreciated. Thank. Do you think that Jake's away because he exhausted himself so badly by putting up the... Uh, information last week. That Could be, be, but I also, like, I, I try to contact him, but he probably just caught up somewhere, and he's going to have to watch it if he wants to continue. And I'm sure he will. I tried to message him earlier on, but he didn't respond, and he didn't look at a message, so I'm sure he's not not around. Right. Yeah, no, no, no problem. Okay, so thanks... Thanks, everyone, for participation. Thank you so much, Nick, for this great... Uh, yeah, thank, thank everybody a lot for this. And, and I'm sorry if it seemed a bit chopped up compared sometimes we've, we've, we get total flow and sometimes there's some choppiness to it. But I've, I've got a lot out of this, so I'm very grateful to everybody. Okay, so uh, I'm going to end the broadcast and see you all next week, 10 a.m., uh, Eastern Standard Time for the seventh, second last seminar. Okay, great. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Have a good week.